You went to school, you hung out with your friends, you did school stuff, and then you went home and you were with your family. Um, so it was this dichotomy of what your life is like from 8 to 3.30 or 4.30 or Friday night at the game and all your friends of all different types of race and ethnicity. And then you go home and you're black. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is more than 30 years in the making and goes back to a warm spring day in the late 1980s when my friends Joey, Paul, Doug, and I took a rubber raft to an isolated island in the river near our high school. We took a bunch of slide photos of that adventure, and not long after, Doug and I taped a rap song about the experience that followed the tune of this song. That's Paul Revere by the Beastie Boys, a song that was brand new at the time. I've long since lost the cassette tape version of the song Doug and I recorded back in the day, but I do know that it was meant to go along with the slideshow of our friends Joey and Paul paddling the raft across the river, and it implied that they were sneaking into America from Mexico. Joey's last name was Rodriguez, and Paul's last name was Gutierrez, and while it was no particular secret that they were born in Kansas, the same as Doug and me, the very existence of our song and its seeming racial implications is the kind of thing that might get us kicked out of school if it were recorded in the age of social media. I'm still close to a lot of my old high school friends, and a couple years ago, while attending a baseball game in my hometown with Joey, who is an adult goes by the name Joe, I reminded him about that old rap song. We marveled both at how offensive its existence seems now and how innocent it seemed at the time, in part because it was created by a couple of friends for another couple of friends, and all four of us understood it as an inside joke, since Joey in particular had a way of spinning satirical, self-deprecating stories about having snuck into Kansas from Mexico, stories that were entertaining in part because he and Paul felt as fully American as Doug and me, and in part because there were nonetheless people we knew in our Kansas hometown who assumed Joey and Paul weren't American based on how they looked. The four of us were close friends at the time, and it's hard to appreciate the satirical subtleties of the song unless you understand the nature of our friendship, which was forged in part by competing together on the cross-country and track teams. In fact, one thing that Joe reminded me a couple years ago at that baseball game was that as teenagers at our high school, we had all kinds of racially specific jokes and nicknames for each other, particularly in the context of sports, precisely because our high school was racially diverse and, for the most part, kids from those races got along with each other. I have since related this story to other old friends from high school, not just white and Hispanic friends, but black and Asian high school friends as well. And the more I talked, the more I came to realize that the way we experienced racial diversity as teenagers wasn't just a positive and instructive experience back in the day. It has actually made us savvier, more broad-minded, and literally more professionally astute and employable as adults. In media discussions of diversity and of racial diversity in particular, it's easy to overlook how the true experience of diversity invariably translates into social capital. My friends and I experienced diversity in a way unique to our Wichita Public School, and as the essayist William Derisowitz wrote a few years ago, public schools are very different places than private ones. Their student bodies, for the most part, are far more diverse economically and in every other way, which means that these institutions do not have to deal with a population of affluent, sheltered white kids who don't know how to talk to black or brown people and need to be, quote, educated into, quote, awareness by the presence of African-American and Latino students who are in turn expected to, quote, represent their communities. 
When different kinds of people grow up together, rather than being introduced to one another under artificial conditions in young adulthood, they learn to talk and play and study together honestly and unselfconsciously without feeling like they have to tiptoe around the sensitivities that are created by the situation itself. So, today's episode focuses on that dynamic in a very personal way. My old track team buddy Joe Rodriguez joins me for this conversation. When he finished high school and college, he worked for 20 years as a newspaper journalist and now works in development at a Catholic church in Wichita. We're also joined by our old friend Kay Monk Morgan, the academic star of my high school class, who now works as a high-ranking administrator at Wichita State University, and Tony Johnson, the star of our high school basketball team who has since worked in aviation, started his own hand tool company, and counseled troubled kids at the public schools. I picked these three people for the podcast for the simple reason that I like them. We were all friends back in the day and remain so now, but also because we come from a variety of racial and economic backgrounds. I'll let the specifics come out in the conversation itself, though I will say I was the only white guy in the room. The goal here was to talk about the experience of diversity in a way that goes beyond the clickbait nature of how we've come to address race in America. Indeed, we didn't get together to talk about a certain conflict or headline or political abstraction, and I'd like to think we avoid sentimentality and didacticism and awkward hypotheticals. Instead, we aim to have the kind of conversation you don't hear much of in American media these days, an honest and affectionate discussion of what four friends found in common when they were young, even as they came from different racial backgrounds. One thing I'll point out up front is that we all grew up in Wichita, Kansas, a Midwestern city with a metro area of a little over half a million people, and we attended high school at Wichita North, a public school that sat on the city's racial crossroads, which, along with integrated busing, made it uncommonly diverse. This fact about my old high school actually came up way back in episodes 13 and 14 of this podcast when I interviewed a couple of old high school friends about police work in America. This didn't make our old high school a racial paradise necessarily, but it did compel us to come to terms with racial difference in a way that many of us, in retrospect, now consider a privilege. Other high schools in the same city may have had different racial environments, and in fact this conversation may have had a different tone had I talked to different individuals from our own high school. But I'd like to think that the four of us talk about race that evokes certain American universals in an optimistic way. It's the kind of conversation we enjoyed so much that it lasted a good hour after we turned off the microphone. There were several curious twists in the conversation, including a brief appearance by Tony's wife, whose racial background is different than his. And in the final five minutes, we talk about how our high school mascot, that is, the mascot of one of the most racially diverse schools in Kansas, is considered by many people to be an offensive racial stereotype. We also talk about how the Art Deco detailing on our school's architecture literally includes swastikas. All right, here's Joe and Kay and Tony and me talking about what it was like to grow up together despite our racial differences. We start by talking about the affectionate nicknames our classmates gave each other back in the day, terms that in retrospect can feel a little racially awkward. Let's listen in. I got this idea when Joe and I were at a Wichita Wingnuts game and we were just watching baseball. It's a good slow game, recollecting our memories of school. And I remember a rap that uh, Doug and I made uh, about to this tune, Paul Revere. And it was about Joey and Paul crossing the Rio Grande to come to America. And I thought to myself, if that got out on social media these days, we'd be kicked out of school. (laughs) Yeah. But we didn't, we didn't do it to make fun of Joe and Paul. We did it because they were a couple of our best friends. 
and that Joe was always making jokes about Silver Cross the River, was always making jokes about that sort of thing. And then Joe brought up, well, you know, Tamir, Demirdalen was on the track team, and what nickname did you did did you call him? Yeah, so he was a he was an exchange student from Turkey, and he um, he did the shot put. He was kind of this big big kid, friendly, just friendly. Everybody got along with him. But when, you know, you give nicknames to everyone on your team, on your sports, what we did back then. But we, we called him, and this is really kind of embarrassing again today, but we called him the Turkish terrorist. Right. Wow. You know, and this is in 1986, 1987, of course. You don't really, you don't think, post 9-11, of course, that all changes. But back then, that's what, you know, he loved it. He loved it. He loved, he embraced the nickname, and well, you know, we would when he'd go up to do his shot put. You know, we would say that. Um, so yeah, it was it, it, again. I had it kind of done to me, but you know, we we it was a give and take. We did it to others too, and so when I played, I was a the sophomore basketball team, and Bobby Reyes and I were the only Mexican Americans on the team. So when we went into the game. A few of the other players called us. We were both guards. They called us the Taco Connection. And again, wow. in 1986, 1987, well, probably even earlier now, we were sophomores. You know, it's like, hey, that's kind of neat. It's kind of cool. Today, that wouldn't be, of course, you know, we, we the players would have all been, you know, suspended and everything. I mean, just like I would have been suspended if I, you know, know that we would have said those kinds of things about other people. But again, this is just in the context of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a, a term of endearment, but it's just something that you did. Yeah, and I don't want to turn it into a get-off-my-lawn, things were better in our days, and we used these bad phrases tack, but it was right. interesting how we sort of made that rap out of love for you and Paul, out of inside jokes. Yeah. And it was the same for Tamir, as far, as far as I know. I mean, he... Um, he asked every girl in the school out, I think Tamir did. He'd never been to America before. <laughs> Tamir could be sort of funny. Um, but then, you know, I, I related this to you, Kay, yeah. um, when I interviewed you about your granddad. And it reminds you of a story with your sons about how your sons are of a different generation and, and just sort of the ways that we talk about race is, is a lot more careful now. Absolutely. We were, we were doing some work at our house and, and we were talking about some folks who could do baseboards. And I said, well, I have a couple of former students who can do um, that type of work. Their fathers have taught them to do that work. And I know some people. And I said, you know, he said, well, who? And I said, well, they're good at that. And my oldest kid said, Mom, did you say that Mexicans are good at carpentry? And I said, no, I'm saying Jose, who happens to be Mexican, is also very good at carpentry work. Um, But in the shorthand of that, he took great offense Um, literally walked by the room and heard me say it and came all the way back and said, Mom, I can't believe that you would say something so insensitive. And I thought, that's I'm not being insensitive. He really is very talented in this particular area. Um, But I think it speaks to the level of how what it is and how we engaged at North High School yeah. 30 years ago is certainly not acceptable to young people of the, almost of the same age uh, now. And not that one or the other is good and or bad, just an evolution. Well, I think it's because it's more abstracted now. Like in the age of social media, if you use certain terms, then there's no context. And so I think it's good that young people are more careful about how they speak. Yeah. Um, 
And and again, if that cassette tape with the rap about Joe and and Paul crossing the Rio Grande, if that got out on social media, Doug and I'd probably get kicked out of school. Yeah. I, I think about what you're what, what you're saying and, and and what Joey had said, Joe. Um, <laughs> those things were like to me they they are terms of endearment because you're 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 putting yourself on a different level, you know, when when you're saying you know it's it's taco, you know. What, what, whatever it is, uh, because Joe is your friend, you know, and, and your friend is like your brother. You're going to have nicknames and all that type of stuff uh, that you go to for people that you, you care about, you know, people that really don't know you. Yeah, that's Joe going in to, to play ball, but that's my that's my boy right there, Taco, you mm-hmm. know, whatever, you know. And those type of things yeah. brought you closer together because it's kind of like an inside deal that, mm-hmm. you know, only uh, we know about. Well, I think, too, that we, again, we, we, we were blessed to be a very diverse high school. And if all high schools had this experiential diversity that we experienced as teenagers, um, we might not need to be quite so sensitive because there's a context in which, I mean, Joe, our, our little rap was done in a sports context, again, mm-hmm. for the cross-country team. In fact, I think we took a rubber raft and we swam out to that island downstream of high school right. and we took some pictures. And then that's what gave us the idea to make this little rap. Another reason why I want to have this conversation is that I'm a pretty global guy now. I spend a lot of time in New York under professional circumstances, and I'll have New York friends that express surprise that I grew up in a diverse environment. And in fact, I had a, a friend, I casually mentioned that it was about 30% you know, Hispanic or Latino at, at school. I could be wrong about that figure, but it must be fairly close to that. And they're like, oh, wow, I you don't strike me as someone who went to school with Mexicans. And it's like, well, what does that mean? But then it was also, well, what was that like? What was that like to go to school with Mexicans? And it's like, well, it depends on which Mexican you're talking about, you know, because if you do experience diversity, you don't have to see things so categorically. Right. You know, I can say that Joe went to my house. We played poker in the basement. Um, I made a really offensive rap about him one year, whereas there's other Mexican guys I didn't know very well at all. So um, I guess I'll just talk about myself first. I, and, we can talk about, and of course, just so my listeners know, we're in Wichita, Kansas, which is right in the middle of the country. Um, and it, over the course of the conversation, sort of the, the racial texture of the city itself will come out. But I grew up at around the 21st and West, which is mostly white neighborhood. There are a few Mexican families, very few black families. Most of them were like um, engineer families from Boeing or Cessna or something like that. And um, middle class, my parents were teachers. And... Uh, Completely white. I did a DNA test. I have a little bit of Neanderthal. I used to make jokes about. <laughs> I used to make jokes about being part Neanderthal. Then I realized that South Park made it into an episode. There's like a South Park episode about genetic testing. Class-wise, it, the neighborhood was sort of working-class people moved there. The working-class empty nesters would move to that which part of Wichita, and then middle-class people would buy their first homes there before moving on. If you know that part of town. Mm. Um, so, Kay, what about you? Did you? You know, I talked to you about when we interviewed your grandfather, John, that was on Minnesota. Is that your neighborhood? Actually, I I grew up um, until fifth grade. I lived in that neighborhood right off of around 21st and Grove. Okay. So it's an African-American part of town. Primarily African-American community uh, historically uh, and still is today. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fifth grade, moved to almost, what, 24th and Jeanette. So 21st and Arkansas. 
Um, for those of you that don't live in Kansas, you might call that Arkansas. We don't do that here. <laughs> now, is that a, was that more of a Hispanic neighborhood back then? It was a, a, a almost mixed. It was okay. really kind of a, an integrated neighborhood where I had white kids who lived two blocks, you know, north and south. Lynn Gibson and some folks like that. Um, like lots of, of of Hispanic students or kids who lived nearby. But within the the like a four block radius, I had about thirteen cousins that lived in that community. So it was heavy African-American uh, working community there, but scattered around, it was just any and everybody. I grew up in a, in a very um, diverse neighborhood, walking neighborhood, very pedestrian. Um, lots of folks who would play outside. It was still a time where um, pre-video game, you guys remember that? We didn't have video games to play with. We might have had an Atari. Uh, Atari. Uh, first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before that, we played outside. And so um, I had an opportunity very early on I, to, to, to be really engaged with other, other cultures and races. And what class? Like if you were to put your family in a social class? Um, our neighborhood was was very working class. Uh, we were low income, okay, uh, and and were I don't know that we'd say impoverished, but economically disadvantaged for sure. Did your mom? Did she work at? Was she a lunch lady? My mom school? is a lunch lady. My she mother still is. still is a lunch lady. Okay. My mother has been a lunch lady at Cloud Elementary uh, for almost thirty years. Tony, well, I uh, grew up around. Uh, Stadium in Hillside, which is the Wichita State um, area, um, on our block, um, we actually had some white um, people s- scattered through the neighborhood. Um, were they university white people or were they neighborhood white people? They were neighborhood. Um, okay. I kind of got used to to seeing people that were different from me growing up. So, uh, And those people were very nice to us. Uh, you know, I had a, a next door neighborhood. He was a, a Wichita State student. David, he taught me how to skateboard. He, you know, he's, he's a white guy. And then across the street, Nikki, Nikki Thompson and Brenda oh, yeah. Thompson, they, they stayed across and their mom was white. And so um, I, I was exposed early. And, uh, you know, people were, were good to us. And uh, we were good to them and, you know, respected people uh, and, and just enjoyed each other's company. I mean, I would stop in and talk to them and... Mm-hmm. and it was just a good situation for us. And, you know, we were low income uh, growing up, you know, um, and it, it it worked out. And I made a connection early with uh, Steve Ress and, and oh, yeah. he was like my ace, you know, all the way through. Uh, he's a good guy. And, you know, he comes from a diverse uh, family. His mom was white and dad was Mexican and stuff like that. And uh, I got along very well with his parents, his, his siblings. Um, and all, and it was just a good experience. And you and Steve were cool guys in junior high, too, because you were good at basketball. A little bit. <laughs> um, I didn't even mention That's an that. awesome laugh. <laughs> you notice he didn't, he didn't correct you. <laughs> a little bit. Well, no, he did. For Wichita State, one of the great college basketball Absolutely. teams in the country. And we'll get to Joe in a second here, but we were all tower royalty, right? The, yes. That sort of like... Once, once you have homecoming kings and queens and prom kings and queens, which I know you, you were a prom queen, right? I was a prom Were you royalty? No? Okay. No, I'm just Tony. <laughs> <laughs> like all the leftover kids that got good grades were tower royalty. And you were tower king. 
Is that right, Joe? That's right. Yeah, yeah. with your sister, Kristen, who was <laughs> Tower Queen. Yeah. So we'll introduce you in a second, Joe. But just if if there's one thing we have in common, um, it's that we all were, had good enough grades to be to be uh, Tower royalty oh, candidates yeah. in high yeah. school. So. Um, <clears throat> And so, Joe, I mentioned sports. You weren't in sports, were you, Kay? Other than, than pom-pom, no. Okay. Not a gift. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, I know you from honors classes. I know Tony from, from junior high. And then I met Joe on the cross-country team when I went to high school, a couple years older than me. So why don't you introduce yourself, Joe? Yeah. Joe Rodriguez, native Wichita. Uh, I grew up in the in the neighborhood that that Kay described. Uh, the neighborhood historically for uh, Mexican and Mexican American families was kind of the settling place because most of the Mexican Americans from my generation, I'm 50 years old. Um, most of those families, our grandparents came from Mexico to Wichita to work on the railroad, and. Um, that became North Wichita became the area where many of those families built homes and well uh, Olympic bronze medalist North High graduate Nico Hernandez talks right. about representing North Side right yeah. right yeah. right exactly yeah yeah and um, you know for me it, it, I really never realized much about race just because it was such my family was a very racially diverse family uh, my neighborhood was we as Kay mentioned, we'd play outdoors. We'd be at the park playing with every kid in the neighborhood at Woodland Park. And, and we utilized every bit of that old park. Um, and then when I went to middle school, I went to Horseman. And what was really fascinating, that was kind of my first exposure to uh, Asian American families. And so I made a lot of friends that their families were refugees from Vietnam. And some of these... Um, uh, that exposed me to another part of a racial diversity that, that I never really saw kind of growing up. And uh, again, kind of opened my eyes to, to just being around other people and all of us hung out together. So that was really my first exposure. North, certainly, um, as we mentioned, I, I think looking back, it might have been 30, 30, 30, 30% Hispanic, 30% African-American, 30% white, and then 10% Asian and, 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 um, Native American students, but Horseman was really almost that that type of model as well, where we had a very racially diverse student body. Most of us from the, the neighborhood, working class kids, and and as Tony mentioned, like when I would go to your house, Ralph, I would say, "This guy's rich, man." That's really <laughs> to me. That's what being rich was was to see that you know to to experience that because I really never experienced that growing up. Well, I want to touch on a couple of things you brought up, but I'm, I want to bounce your stats off of Kay and Tony D. Was it 30, 30, 30, you think? What was what was the breakdown? I I assumed it was more like 50, 20, 20. I was thinking more along the 20 for for um, blacks being yeah. represented, yeah. 19 to 20. Okay. I think one of the, the really interesting things, I happen to be an African-American who lived with his with the Hispanic and white kids more so than the black kids. Most of the black kids came from the northeast side of the community. From, from Tony's so, neighborhood. Yeah. And even sometimes I felt like, you know, in the melting pot or the stew or whatever it is that we could refer to North High, not quite I, I hung out with Joey more than I hung out with Tony. Hmm. <laughs> um in the neighborhood or at school? Well in the neighborhood. Okay. In the neighborhood. Now at school I think everybody hung out with everybody. You didn't yeah. have to claim a set, right? right? You didn't have to be with any prescribed group of people. You could be with whomever 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no clicks like that. Yeah. And, right. and for me, growing up where I grew up, you know, I exposed myself to even more. I mean, with some of my friends, Mike Mason, them, and uh, we would ride our bikes, walk over to that side of town yeah. just yeah. to hang out, play sports and stuff like that and, and, and have fun. So, um, and, and it was safe doing it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, really didn't have any anything that went on racially that would be like, I didn't belong there, you right. know, type deal. Right. And so, so you uh, mean like the Hadley Junior High area? Yeah, I would so, sort of my neighborhood, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I would. We, we would venture over there and 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 have fun. And BB Hill. Roll back back. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know. Like, um, I don't want my listeners to think, oh, they must have lived in some racial paradise in in the nineteen eighties. Because um, one thing that happened, like when we were playing football one day after a cross country party, we were throwing the football around in the street, and one of the neighbors called the police and said that kids were going through cars. Now it was it was decades later before I thought. At the time, I just thought, "What? Well, that's weird." Mm-hmm. It was decades later before I thought, "Well, I wonder if they saw Joe and Paul, and they weren't used to Mexican kids in the street." And I wonder if it was a, there was a racial component. It's impossible to know because right. I don't know which neighbors called the police. But it, I think we were so comfortable with, it, with, with with each other at the time that it didn't even occur to me that why would anybody call the police because of Joe, mm-hmm. you know, or Joey as we called him back in the day. <laughs> Another thing that happened at that at that baseball game. Um, when I was telling you the story, when I was sort of semi-apologizing for that rap we made about you guys, um, you told a story about your grandmother, how she had three portraits in her bedroom um, of men. And I'll let you say who those portraits were of, but I realized that there's a Mexican side of you that I never really knew. Um, And I've made comments to Kay before that are sort of naive. The equivalent would be um, racial blindness thing, you know, and, and Kay would say, Gently, you know, well, Wolf, actually, you don't really know about that part of my life. So one thing I want us to share is the racially specific parts of our life mm-hmm. that we may not may not have been on display uh, when we were going to school together at North because, you know, Joe is a, is a sports friend and, and you're a honors class friend. Um, and in the course of AP chemistry, it might not have come up, you know, the, the racially specific uh, parts of your life. But just because I'll tell the story wrong, Joe... Um, Tell us which three uh, pictures of men your Mexican grandmother had in her bedroom. Well, I, I, I would always tell this story. Groups would invite me to talk about the Hispanic community and, and history of Wichita. And I would always share the story of immigration and that how immigration works and how it happens. And I said, immigration works. And I said, my example is my grandmother, who's the only grandparent that I knew. Again, all four of my grandparents came from Mexico Two died before I was born, and, and my grandfather died when I was 10 months old. So my grandmother was the only one that I knew. But other than, than family members' pictures in her house, in her room, she had three 8 by 10 portraits, framed portraits, Jesus Christ, John F. Kennedy, and the third one was Mike George. And I would always tell everyone, I'll, I'll buy you a Coke if you can tell me who Mike George was. And no one was like, who? I know the first two. I don't know who Mike George is. I said, Mike George was this wrestler. The Bulldog Bob Brown, Abdullah the Butcher, Andre the Giant style of wrestler. And I, it's, it's funny, but I kept the picture after she passed. I said, I want that picture because that, to me, tells the story of immigration and how it works. So my grandmother, 75, 80, 80 years, not 85 years old, would go to these wrestling matches at Century 2. They used to have wrestling matches on Monday nights. 
and the Bulldog Bob Browns and Andre the Giants and those guys would come every Monday and they would put on the show. And so my grandmother would be right there in the front row watching these wrestlers. And it was just, it was a sight that showed me. Eventually I learned that, you know, out of everything that she did culturally, you know, she's a wonderful cook. She spoke Spanish only, um, you know, just everything culturally that she did within her faith and her, her, um, her background, that she embraced this cultural popular sport in America wrestling and her favorite wrestler was mike george he's posing with his hands on his hips <laughs> that told me the story of immigration and how it works you know it's just someone is here they're going to embrace all of the, the the beautiful things to them that this country has to offer you know that that to her it was wrestling <laughs> that was her you know her her she loved Lawrence Welk too. She'd watch Lawrence Welk on Sundays, but on Mondays she was going to watch Bulldog Bob Brown and Mike George wrestle at Century Two. I'll have to put Lawrence Welk in the show notes because I have younger listeners who have no idea who Lawrence Welk is. But that could be Gosh, the, the, yeah, the whitest American in the twentieth yeah. century would be Lawrence Welk. My grandpa watched Lawrence Welk yeah, too. Yeah, your grandfather well, who's featured in this podcast yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. 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 So let's sort of talk about the, the grandparent level of our heritage, because that's part of who we are. You know, my grandfather was a farmer and, you know, there's really no, unless you count Neanderthal, there's no racial complexity in my background, but he was a working class guy. And my mom came from a working class family more so than my dad's family, which were Wichita lawyers. Um, and there's a story, actually, he, my grandfather was born in New Mexico but uh, one of the reasons that they moved to Kansas, and I'm ashamed to say it, but it's a fact, is that they hired a Mexican teacher at the school and they were so nervous about sending their kids to be taught by a Mexican in what was probably, I don't know if it was still a territory then, that they followed the Lutheran directory to, to Neosha River Valley of Kansas. And so it's weird how we have a perspective, a historical perspective on our own experience of race, but sometimes it's, it's sort of weird and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this rural connection. And I know, Kay, that you had a rural aspect to your upbringing. But oftentimes when I would leave Wichita to visit my, the farm side of my family, I would sort of cross class lines, you know. Um, you guys know, what's the word, Kay, you probably know, is it code shifting? Code switching. Code switching, yeah. Yeah. I would draw more around my country relatives, huh. I think, because of this, you know, instinctive, I had left sort of the, the Wichita lawyer side of my family. I was more on the, the Kansas farmer side of my family. And I'd go there with my friends, even in high school, and they'd say, why are you drawing all of a sudden? <laughs> but I was, I, was, I was switching over. I was, yep. I, I'd sort of crossed crass, uh, class lines. So what are some grandparent level, and I just found out today, Tony, you, your family comes from the deep south too, yes. Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, so how does that, what do you remember about previous generations and how they inform who you were coming up? Uh, for me, is um, you know, my mom, she picked cotton and stuff. You know, we we had. Uh, uh, so she was up. raised in the South. Yeah, she was. She was. Okay. She she left um, in her adulthood and moved up here by herself. But she's from Bogalusa, Louisiana, and um, then the family picked up and moved to Brandon, Mississippi, where my grandfather owned land and. Um, you know, he used to tell the stories of how he had to pick cotton and all that type of stuff, but they had cotton fields and all that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's different when you go back home, uh, to a, to an area like that, it was like, you kind of knew where you stood. 
mm. down there because there there were some racial stuff. It had mm-hmm. statues up there that said, you know, <laughs> different things that, you know, you had to be in your place and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It might have been removed by now. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and then being up here, um, it's kind of like you don't know. You know, you get you got to get a feel, you know, uh, how people really are, you know, and, and you know, you, you give people chances to show you uh, their best side or their worst sides. And, uh, you know, for me, I've just always took the approach that, you know, if you get to know me, you're going to love me, you know, and if you don't, that's just your loss. <laughs> you know, that, that's, 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 that's my feeling. And then I was just thinking back, you know, to how I grew up in my neighborhood you know, I thought it was the greatest neighborhood, you know, the, the parents and stuff, they all cared and, you know, looked out for one another and all this type of stuff, you know, we used to do the fireworks over there, Wichita State, you know, and, you know, white people would come to the neighborhood, you know, park because there wasn't parking or whatever. And during that process, you know, we're out there playing street football and all this stuff and people start hitting their locks on the doors <laughs> and stuff like that. I'd be like, what is these people doing? Or, you know, they walk through, they clench their purse or walk on the other side of the thing. You know, that type of stuff upset me, hmm. you know, because I'm like, why are you looking at me, looking at me that way? Mm-hmm. Because I haven't given you any signals to do that. And so I could have formed all these different notions, you know, of what people thought of me and, and, and kept that way and hardened myself towards others. But I chose to embrace, you know, because my mother was a Christian lady and her home was open to everyone, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so that that turned everything for me so that I embrace you. You embrace me. Everything's good. You know, it's almost like you be it because of your mother or other factors. You're sort of a peacemaker at heart. And I see you post things on social media sometimes. And people always fight so much on social media. Mm-hmm. And I have a I have sort of a a peace gesture that you that you uh, put on social media a long time ago. I liked it so much that I, I, I copied it. And so I'll read it back to you at some point. I'm curious before we move on to Kay here, do you think the fact, like I sort of remember you as a star. You were like the, the good basketball player who everybody liked. Did that make it easier, you think? Because you were um, gifted, you know, you were a good athlete and a good student. Did that make it easier to to walk through the world? Or do you think that you would have been you regardless? I just, I mean, I put a lot of it on my mom, you know, um, because she just told me just to love everyone. You know, she said, Jesus, you know, uh, told you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so uh, I, I want everybody to, to, to prosper and, and, and do well in the, in the grand scheme of things. But like I said, my brothers, you know, older sisters and stuff, they always told me to be careful, you know, and on the athletic side of things, you know, it was... Some, it was like, you know, you, you got to get yourself to a standard that people respect what you're doing, but also understand that you're more than just a basketball player. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just some dumb jock out here. You're representing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I look at it. I'm representing my mom. My mom goes out mm-hmm. and works her tail off, you know, for us. I want to do something that's pleasing in her eyes. So I don't want to be, you know no troublemaker or get in trouble, you know, that type of deal. I want to go out there and give full effort and so and see what my efforts bring me. Yeah, well, I might bring in this Facebook post right now since I mentioned it. And I think that's sort of part of your 
maybe one of your gifts was to be a connector and a peacemaker type mm -hmm. person. This says, and I'm not even sure what the context, I'm not sure if it was like a Colin Kaepernick thing and there could be some real polarized opinions about that sort of thing. But you wrote, what does it mean when one says they love this country? Are we God? Do we cast judgment on our brothers and sisters? Or should we come to aid in time of need and love your neighbor as you love yourself? If you love your country, meaning all that comes with it, do you find common ground to move forward? Do you, or do you dig in your heels and look for comfort in others who see the world through the same premise as you? Share with me the love of your country. Drop a few lines on why you love this country. However, you can't say freedom or anything that has to do with money. Those are too easy to hide behind. Let's see how diverse our love for country is. So I thought that was cool because in a time where you could have, as a, as a black American, you could have sort of put people in their spot. But instead, you took an almost Christian approach and said, let's, let's praise what's good about America in a non-cliche way. Anyway, I saved, that must have been two years ago you wrote that down, I saved it, so I thought I'd share it here. I appreciate that. Yeah, that jog my memory. Right. <laughs> like, wow, yeah, look at you being deep. But yeah, I mean, you know, people's backgrounds, you know, you're, you're, you're going to see things through your perspective, and, and, and your perspective might not be the same as mine. You know, I grew up, I, I feel hard, you know, coming from a single parent uh, home, youngest of seven kids and stuff like that, you know. On the outside, it might look like everything was put together, but, you know, there was hard times and stuff like that. And so if you're not experiencing hard times and you're saying, well, this person's lazy, he ain't doing this, ain't doing that, and, you know, you're grouping us all in, a, in, in into one group, and that could be the furthest thing from the truth. You know, this guy's out here cutting grass, you know, handing out flyers, cleaning up Wichita State and all this type of stuff just to get by, you know. And mm. my, my story might be a little different, but I respect your story as well as I respect mine, you know. And so you got to be open to understand that everything just doesn't fly smooth just because it's running smooth for you. And just because things are great for you, at some point, some tragedy might occur that brings you to my level. Mm. And then I'm still going to have compassion for you, you know, when you come down that way, whereas you didn't have compassion for me when, I, when you were on that different level. But anything you might add about your upbringing? Kay? You know, I, I don't know that it's significantly different than, than either of our colleagues here. Um, I think one thing that might be different is my grandfather was, also, was actually married to a white woman. Um, the woman who I refer to as my grandmother um, happened to be his second wife, but the wife that I grew up with, uh, Grandma Wilma, was white. Uh, and so folks would be really surprised when Grandma Wilma would show up uh, at different events, whether it's a, at middle school band concerts or cheerleading thing. Um, that's your grandma? Yeah. That's my grandma, dude. Yeah. Um, so growing up with, with a, a relatively um, diverse family situation and kind of like to Tony's point, my family was whoever shows up is family. So if, if you're in here, you're in here yes. and we're going to treat you the same as, as anybody else. Um, my grandparents on my paternal side were uh, closely re related in the Native American community. Um, although most of that culture and heritage had been ripped away when they moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Wichita, Kansas. And so a very eclectic kind of looking people. If you would. So do you have Native American ancestry? Oh, yeah. Okay. Very, very, uh, you don't have to go back very far. Okay. To even be able to find that, uh, particularly on my grandma Kirkendall's side. 
And so we we were um, kind of egalitarian in that, you know. I think that the common denominator is that we were all poor, so it didn't really matter what your race or ethnicity was. We were all poor people trying to do the best that you could and sharing what it is that you had in order to advantage either yourselves or others um, to get to the next kind of the next phase. Joe, would you call yourself poor coming up, or would you use a different word? Uh, we were so poor we couldn't pay attention. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we considered ourselves. Um, you know, the thing is, when you grow up that way, you don't you don't realize. You don't even it. know you don't you're know poor. It. Yeah, you just that, that's how you lived, and it's not till you kind of see other things, and you're like, oh, okay, this is how this is how other things can be. You know, you just you didn't really realize it. We. Um, you know, I, I I remember like when we took a, a trip to Kansas City, and that was like a big deal to go to Worlds of Fun. You know, as a kid, it was huge, and I just you know just still remember the, that kind of a trip back then. But yeah, I guess you know, growing up, we we were, and then when I would hear my mother talk about how she grew up, and I would think they were poor. I wasn't poor. You know, just the, just the kind of situation that 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 she grew up in. Um, so yeah, I guess you you know looking back we were, but you just didn't you didn't realize it. You didn't think about that. You know, it's just we we had fun. We 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 had a good childhood. That's what I remember. Just a good good childhood. Um, and, and again, time when you could be out late playing at the park at ten o'clock at nine years old, not worrying about really anything. Um, so yeah, I guess kind of looking back, yes, but we just never realized it. <laughs> We just always said that, you know, we we might be poor, but we're rich in love. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Um, a lot of that stuff, it, it just, it shields you and, and blinds you from the from the actual facts, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that it, it was a serious struggle yeah, <laughs> that we yeah. were going through. Well, I was, I was recently being interviewed for a podcast and I was talking about one lesson I learned from travel was something that was sort of a re-lesson because we're so individualistic in the United States. Mm. That um, one thing I learned from meeting poor people in other countries is how important family is and how rich you can be through the yes. love of family. Yes. And so I ended up moving back to Kansas. And I'll admit it, it's super cheap to live in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have a, a rural house up near my family up north. But another thing that I, it took foreign communities uh, yeah. to teach me or to remind me because I, mm -hmm. I didn't grow up as poor as you guys. You know, pretty much bullseye middle class up at 21st and West is how much family counts and how you can never be too poor if, you're, if your family counts and how you go to Vietnam and entire families, including cousins, will pool together their money and they'll yes. buy property and they'll share that property. And so that's what I did in Kansas, that I, I, I intentionally made that choice. Mm -hmm. So I guess I didn't have that the blessing of poverty to help me realize that I was close with my family, but I didn't realize that of how rich you can be through family. Yeah. Yes. Joe brought up the idea that it was fun. It was fun to be at Woodland Park. I think it was fun to go to North. I mean, there's this idea that, this social media idea that diversity is a duty and it's this grim abstraction that we must apply to our lives. But it was fun. Am I, am I remember it wrong? Yeah. We have fun as teenagers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was just one of those places where Nirvana, right? I mean, where you, 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 you can't, you couldn't graduate from North High School without an intimate relationship with someone who was different than you in the sense that you'd been to their home, you'd eaten their food, you'd met their parents. Um, you, you just couldn't escape bumping those, those types of collisions with folks who were different. Not other, but different. Hmm. Um, and I think that's, a, an for me, a, a very interesting um, 
differentiation in the sense that people, what Tony was doing might be different, but he never seemed like he was something different from me per se. So the, the other piece of people, we didn't, we just didn't other people that way. Yeah. yeah and so it, it's like, there wasn't a place you couldn't go. You know, you, you didn't have to fear like, oh, I'm on the Mexican side, you know, or the white people, they're going to give me, you know, that type of stuff, you know, and it's just everybody got along. I mean, um, and, and I felt comfortable in every setting, you know, I knew uh, Vu and C and, and, you know, from the Vietnamese side, I mean, yeah, it, was, it yeah. was others. It was just, we, everybody could communicate and everybody respected each other and you could hang out with right. whoever you wanted to hang out with and, you know, uh, and, and feel good about it. And, and I think from, from a race perspective, looking at it, so, you know, a lot of times racism exists because we don't have a knowledge or enough interaction right. with people who are different than us. And right. so we base it on maybe one experience you had with a person from a particular race. And so you judge a whole group of people based on that. Well, I look at my time at North and I can say I had instances where I had bad interactions with people who happened to be Mexican-American, African-American, white. And if, I, if that was my only contact I had with each of those individuals in that race, I would say, man, everyone is like that. They all have to be like that. But I had... So many other interactions with people because you're just exposed to it every day, um, both in my neighborhood and at school, that then that's how you are not racist because you'd learn just because one person from this group does this does not mean everyone mm -hmm. behaves that way. Just because this one person is a bully who happens to be Hispanic American does not mean that I'm going to bully you or the rest of us are going to bully you. And, you know, today, I think, again, with social media, when one thing happens, it gets out there, you know, people make judgments based on one story. Whereas if they had interactions with other groups of people on a daily basis constantly, we, we wouldn't have those kinds of issues as much. I'm not saying it's going to go entirely, but, you know, if we lived in neighborhoods that were racially diverse or worked with the... In a, cult and community that's racially diverse or went to a, a place of worship that's racially diverse. You know, we, we had different interactions, different friendships. We would learn. It's one instance. It well, I might point out that our context is specific to Wichita North. So for people who might not know Wichita, there's North, South, East, West, sure. Northwest, Southeast, Northeast Magnet. And North has a reputation as a very proud, not particularly wealthy school that's very racially diverse. In, in, in our area, is very specifically white, black, Hispanic, and Asian. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one thing, as you were talking, Joe, one thing that I thought about is that it allows you to call a jackass a jackass. And you were sort of an equal opportunity yeah. caller out of jackasses. Because <laughs> I'm going to name some names here. I'll bleep them out in the edit. But one day in the locker room, white broy guy came over and was flipping the cross country team shit and you stood up and you you basically told him to shut up right. and he he left and the next day not the next day but the next spring it was you know fast guy total jackass african american guy who's just a jackass and joe you did not see race you but you saw jackass okay i don't know not seeing races that that's a complicated thing to say but but you were not afraid i think 
it gave you the privilege to be able to call a jackass a jackass. And it wasn't like you were calling the white guy a jackass or the black guy a jackass. But right. you're you, literally this guy who really was a jackass and this guy who really was a yeah, jackass. Like I said, we, we've all experienced that, you know, in, in, at North and, and anywhere else. We've all experienced the times when you, you know, you do just have to say something. But um, And again, my, my positive interactions and experiences far outweighed those times right. where... But it, again, you know, we're not immune to, to any kind of experience like that happening to us at any point of our lives. It happened to us at North and, you know, as, as racially diverse as we were, um, um, it happened there. And it happens today probably in, in, in all institutions. That was a compliment, by the way. I was yeah, saying that you were. I, I appreciate uh, that. I wasn't Thank saying you. that you were Thank picking you. on no, people. I, 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 just, I do appreciate you, you were, that. You were literally standing up for people in, in yeah, one specific yeah, incident. Yeah. Uh, you were standing up. Uh, for me. Yeah. So, um, what, what, think, what about you guys? I think not only was North, uh, or is North even to this day, uh, give him the privilege of that, but I think it probably happens at North more so than it happens other places because you do have to have collisions and, and interactions with people that are different. Um, I can remember my senior, I think it was my senior year and we were, um, the pom-pom squad was all going to go up to KU for a, um, a camp. And there was a lot of discussion about how we were going to get there. We were going to carpool and could we drive with other drivers? And I just said, well, my grandpa can take us. And people looked at me as if, well, how can your grandpa take us? Mm. Well, my grandfather had a, a motorhome mm. that would sleep 16 people. Mm. Well, we only had eight girls that we needed to get from Wichita to KU. And it was like, your grandpa? People thought because you were black that your grandpa... Well, I don't know why they thought that, <laughs> okay. right? Well, but in one, I didn't have a whole lot of money, although most of my friends in, at, in high school had not, at least my high school friends had not been to my home, so they didn't know how much money I had or didn't have. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the faculty, I, I distinctly mm. recall mm. our cheerleading coach being like, really, mm. your grandpa can do that? Mm-hmm. Yep, my grandpa could do that because, of course, my grandpa could do just about anything. I met your grandpa. He could, he could fly us there on his back if he wanted to. You know, right. that's what I thought as an eighteen-year-old. Um, so I, I, I say that to say I don't know that it was necessarily the most kumbaya experience all the time, but there certainly were opportunities for us to to educate one another in a very real sense that whatever preconceived notions we did have. Could be could fall by the wayside just by the educational opportunity we had with one another. I have a follow up story in the context of pom poms because my sister was a pom pom. Yes, and part of the duty that year, I don't know if it was due to your year, was to decorate the homes of the football players on game day. Yeah, and they went through town. You know, um, they were west of North High decorating houses, and slowly my sister realized that. One by one, the white pom-pom girls are like, oh, it's late. I, I promised my dad I'd help him wash the dishes. And pretty soon they're in Northeast Wichita. They're in the black part of town. And one of the black pom-poms turns to my sister and says, thank you. Thank you for staying. And my sister looked around. She was the only white girl left. Yeah. And so that that's more the subtle racial yeah. discomfort, I think, that would happen in a place like North is that for whatever reason, some of the white pom-pom girls that year, maybe their dad told them that... You can go past the canal route in Wichita. You should be careful. It was, it's after dark. For whatever reason, my sister was the only white pom-pom girl mm-hmm. left. And so that's a very subtle mm-hmm. way that, again, it's not kumbaya, right. you know. So, um, And in fact, <clears throat> just to sort of to broaden the discussion a little bit and, and talk about those, those racial slights, 
um, that maybe would be invisible to me, you know, as, as a white guy. I think another, correct me if I'm wrong, but Tony, I think you posted on Facebook once, you were really rattled because you got pulled over by the cops and they were treating you like a suspect. And to me, it's like, Tony Johnson? Why would you want right. to Did he not Johnson? see the Jesus post earlier? <laughs> right. <I> missed that. <laughs> well, it's just like, you're such an affable guy. You know, you're such a likable guy. The, the idea that anybody would pull you over and suspect you on the basis of presumably race, of being a suspect, I don't know what their call was. And we have friends that are policemen and they might have more information about that sort of thing. But you seemed a little rattled. Yeah. Um, um, you know, when, when I think about it, you know, I was, I was in college and, you know, I'm a big guy. And uh, I was riding with a teammate at the time. And he was Mike Wiggins. And he's six foot eight, <laughs> you know. And so we're on 13th and Hillside, you know. And I just had paint in my car. It was a red car. Had uh, rims on it and stuff like that. But the officer pulled me over because the tag light bulb was off. Mm-hmm. And it was dark. And, but he comes right there with his gun pulled to my head. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, what's going on? And... I think he was training because I, I guess they say when there's two people in, in in the car or whatever, somebody's in training. So they walk up on us like that. You know, it's like my life could have been ended right. because the bulb on my on my license tag was out. You know, and, and that's crazy. And you know, um, that 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 can just change your whole perspective about law enforcement. You know. I went into law enforcement, you know, and so I hear a lot of times where people are like, oh, you know, that we're protecting and serving and, and all this type of stuff. But as law enforcement, here's another story. All right. So specify your law enforcement. What- I, I, I work for Cedric County uh, Community Corrections, which I was an intensive supervision officer coming okay. out of college. Okay. And so um, we were going to make an arrest on a fella at a car dealership on Douglas. We put out that it's a white, older male that's going to be arrested. So me and my partner, we don't make the actual arrest. You know, police officers have to come in and do it. So we're sitting there. I'm in the front seat. He's in the driver's seat. We're dressed up. And so it's a slow day in in the city. So uh, KBI came out, you know, uh, Cedric County came out, Wichita PD came out. So we're sitting there. And so the KBI guy rolls up and he's like, KBI is Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Yeah. So he's like, I see you got the situation under control. <laughs> and so my partner, <laughs> Greg Freeman, he looks at me like, and I look at him like, wow. He said, got the situation under control. He was like, yeah, you, you got the guy. I, he said, this is my partner, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I'm like, wow, how, how did we get to me being arrested when we came out here specifically looking for someone that was in his 50s with gray hair? And I was just 23 years old, 24 years old at the time. So, you know, there's stuff that's out there, you know, that people just don't realize that occur, mm-hmm. you know, that could shake people. You know, and that could end people's lives in some instances, you know. And so just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Well, that's one thing I'm curious about, because, again, we had the blessing of, of having the option of, of having friends of all different races back in high school and meeting their families and, and cheering for them at sports games and all this stuff. But one th- advantage I didn't have 
was that I, you know, I was just a white guy. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know about Joe's grandparents type thing. So were there any moments of racially specific discomfort or, or, um, where you felt like an outsider or you felt like even well-meaning people like me were saying stuff that sounded sort of ignorant? Do you have any specific memories of that? Gosh, you guys look stumped. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, and are you talking specifically in high school or, or after? Well, let's go big lens. I mean, if you can yeah, think of something yeah. in high school, because I'm afraid that this, that we're being, we're so rosy about North. I think well, I have really great memories about high school. Mm-hmm. So if we can think of a negative, I'd like to talk about it. I mean, well, I talked about my sister and the, and the pom-pom girls, but yeah. go ahead, Joe. No, I was just thinking, you know, I was working at the Eagle at the time, the newspaper in, in Wichita at the time. And I, I had started there right out of college. So, and you know, I'd, I'd been there long time, almost 20 years that I worked there. And I still remember a, re- a reporter and he, he came up to me and this is a middle-aged man. So I was probably, I don't know, 35 or 40 at the time. I can't remember, but I still remember what he told me is he, he could not understand how someone who happened to be Mexican American or Mexican couldn't speak English. And the example what he used is, like you, Joe, you speak English so well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, I, I was born in Wichita, Kansas. Do you, <laughs> do you think we come out of the womb just speaking with an accent or, or speaking Spanish? I, you know, my, my parents only spoke English to me and my Spanish is not very good. Yeah. But that, that, you know, that kind of a thing where this is someone who was working at the Eagle with me, a colleague that really felt, couldn't understand that not all Mexican, Mexican-Americans speak Spanish. <laughs> or that, that's kind of a wake-up thing just when someone who, who you work with thinks that. So, and, and that's happened on a couple different occasions in different ways. Um, uh, and something that I've had to deal with. My Spanish is not great. And kind of on the reverse end, I can go into... Some today Mexican-owned businesses and the people who are Spanish-speaking automatically speak to me in Spanish, and I can get by a little bit. But after a while, I come clean and tell them, "Okay, you know, (laughs) let me get to English. I'll have to talk to you." So you know, it kind of works both ways in in, in some instances. But you know, there's expectations when they hear your last name, when they see what you look like, that oh, you should speak Spanish, or they're surprised. When you speak English, and I'm, I, I went to Wichita State to have a degree in journalism, and so it's like I think I learned English early on. Like, <laughs> well, no, that was part of the joke of, on the cross country team is that you would talk, you would make Mexican specific jokes about yourself, and but the joke was that you were as American as the as any of the rest of us, right? You know? Oh, pretty much so. Yeah, yeah, I think I was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I tell people, you know, my grandmother. She only spoke Spanish. She only spoke Spanish. And the only grandparent I knew. Well, I only spoke English. So my communication with her, I, I could understand it. But I spoke back to her in English. She understood English and would speak to me in Spanish. And that's how we communicated. Um, but I never, never learned Spanish fluently. Uh, even though, sorry, Mr. Allen, even though I took Spanish in high school at North. <laughs> I'm sorry, four too, years. Mr. Allen. <laughs> hey, guilty. <laughs> um, you know, it's but I, I mean today I can get I can get by a little bit, but 
uh, it, again, it just speaks to our experiences and interactions with other people in our group. So. Well, I think North is multi-generational diverse, too. It is. Because yeah. my dad had a, had a Hispanic friend named Gilbert Roman, and he went to school with Barry Sanders' dad, mm-hmm. Willie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Barry Sanders is a one of the stars of our school as an NFL football player. But it wasn't like we were the first generation North High people to be around people of other races. Now, right. I'm sure that my dad's generation, that there may have been more explicit racism. I'm not sure. Um, but even, you know, a lot of famous North High people like James Jabara, well, he's Arab, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he was the first fighter pilot to shoot down five enemy planes in a jet, you know? So, and then, you know, my dad and his sister had friends from various Lebanese families. And so even if probably his generation wouldn't follow the, pass the political correctness test and ours doesn't either in in certain sense but just the fact that there were people of that were that were different so that when some when someone of this race did x Mm -hmm. it wouldn't i mean that's an advantage i have as a white guy as a white in a white majority country if somebody says look what that white guy did i just say jackass you know how how does that apply to me right um, whereas if people do not have the experience of diversity they're just more likely to generalize sort of like Mm -hmm. joe said um what about you guys? Did you have any corollary experiences where you're sort of expected to stand in for black America? I, I know. Did you get did you get irritated at WSU that they kept putting you up on the billboards? Yeah. Like, for a long time, I was the, the I am the black woman who works at Wichita State or was a student at Wichita State. Yeah. But part of that came as a result of being a scholarship student yeah. without regard for race or ethnicity. But I think it helps when you can say, we got one. Right. Uh, look, so, at, look at how diverse look we at, are. Look at how diverse we are. And, and and to be honest, it's one of the things that we still struggle with to this day as, as institutions of higher ed, trying to make sure that we're diversif- uh, diversifying both the student body uh, as well as the faculty and staff. I think those are things that I, I live with every day. I can imagine that you do too, given the work that you do in the school system. Um, I think North prepared us for that in a sense. Um, but there are pieces of that that didn't, right? So we had a very um, kind of kumbaya experience between 8.30 and 3.30. But we didn't hang out. I didn't hang out with white kids at home. I mean, well, Carrie, yes, yay. And we still hang out today. Um, but it's not like I hung out with the group um, who was down at uh, any number of places, right? Because to your point, I didn't hang out either. It just wasn't one of those things that, that we got a chance to do. You went to school, you hung out with your friends, you did school stuff, and then you went home and you were with your family. Um, so it was this dichotomy of what your life is like from 8 to 3.30 or 4.30 or Friday night at the game and all your friends of all different types of race and ethnicity. And then you go home and you're black. Right. And, and I think also, you know, it's like, to me, I'm pretty sure Kay feels this way. It's like there's a standard that 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 you have to carry to oh represent gosh. your people. You're the good in, one in, in the best light, and a lot of times you hear that uh, you know they're not like you. I know some black folks; they're not like you, or, or something like yeah. that. And I'm like, what you mean by that? You know, what I'm saying it's, it's like, of course they're not like me. I'm me, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, there's good bad apples everywhere but you know people they just don't know you know because hey all my friends are white you know my bills are paid you know or or whatever and 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 they don't understand that there's issues out there where they say well joe 
he's Mexican, you know, I don't know about that one, you know. That stuff happens. It and, happens and, all the time. It does. I just had a colleague tell me the other day that I was a, a woman who works in human resources, um, that I was intimidating. Hmm. And I said, well, no, I don't think I'm intimidated. intimidating. I think they are intimidated. Mm-hmm. So we need to be careful where the ownership of this um, is held. And her response was, well, you're just so articulate. <laughs> and I, the A I, word. Right. I'm so, you're, you're so articulate. And so it's just so intimidating. And my response was, I'm an assistant vice president for academic affairs with multiple degrees. One would think that I would be articulate. I think that's kind of one of the job standards, right? So yeah. it goes to the notion of you've got to be the super example. Right. But then, even when you're the super example, there's a problem with that too. And, the, and the, you're the angry black woman yeah, or oh something yeah. like that. And, and a lot of times, you know, a, a lot of people, they'll look at me and they'll think, oh, this guy, he's angry, you huh. know, because I'm just sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm observing, something. you know, and it, it, I get the feel that a lot of times, you know, they expect me to be a clown or something, you know, always cracking jokes and, and all this type of stuff to gain acceptance, you know, and. I don't do those type of things, you know. If I'm comfortable with you, you're going to see teeth and I'm going to smile and, and all this type of stuff. If I'm not, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to stay stern. I'm going to stay professional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to know where we're at, you know. You're not crossing this line with me, you know. And, and we'll have distance. But if I'm comfortable with you, hey, you know, we can crack jokes and get along and eat and blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're showing me the right thing. But I'm not just going to come into a situation and have to be the happy Negro, <laughs> you know, type type situation. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. A funny story that I always tell about our 20th high school reunion, Kay, is all the people going up to the mic and telling stories about sneaking out of school and going to keg parties and stuff. And I keep looking over at, at Kay, because it's like, well, Kay's like an outstanding member of her class. When is she going to tell her story? And later I realized Kay studied. Right. I <laughs> never went to any of those parties. Yeah. Part of the reason that Kay is Kay is that she was doing her work, right? Um, and I wasn't so, invited. Uh-oh. <laughs> Certainly the pom-pom squad went to. Not at all. Really? No, that's well, what, to the point that you did your school stuff with your school friends. Yeah. But when you went, when I went home... I, yeah, I got invited. I just didn't go. You didn't to stuff. go. Yeah, no. But See, you didn't even I, invite me. But I, no, I, I, I wouldn't go because I'm trying to do it. I'm, I'm trying to be a positive force, and then I also had extra. I mean, I had to babysit and oh, all this yeah. other type of stuff that that you know had to go on and take care of. Uh, Never been to a gar- gardening and all this stuff. It's it like, hey, but I didn't miss it though. You weren't meant, I meant to like maybe two keg parties and they were all really, really dumb. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's important to acknowledge the neighborhoodness of these situations because Joey, I think it's the first time Joey, Joe, Joey's your high school name. Um, like coming to my neighborhood was like going to the rich neighborhood and I'm thinking it was almost sort of a working class neighborhood, but it was just, it was, it was richer than, than Joe's neighborhood. And I was thinking I went on a camping trip right after graduation and I look back on that. And it was Jeff Wilson, Tom Davis, Mike Marlette, Scott McIntosh, and Yun Trin. There was only one non-white guy. I'm thinking, why? Why are all those people? Why didn't? Why were there? Why was it such a white trip? Well, there's a certain kind of friend that you have that are neighborhood friends, right? right? 
Um, and you just, it's just easier to get together with them, yeah. you know, and, and Joe went, was at my house a lot, but it's harder for him to get to my house than like Tom Davis who lived within walking distance mm-hmm. of my house. And so that might be sort mm-hmm. of the price of economic as well as racial diversity mm-hmm. is that we came to school and we sort of, it sounds like kumbaya together as, mm-hmm. as, as equals and people who respected each other. But then we went home and you did your homework in your multiracial neighborhood. I went and went to two keg parties, parties, but mostly went to, <laughs> did my homework in my multiracial na- neighborhood. Well, and, and, and as Kay mentioned, and as you kind of uh, talked about with your, your sister's experience um, with the pom-poms and decorating the home, we don't always know. We, we knew our friends. We didn't always necessarily know the parents and what the parents' influence on the, our friends was. Uh, you know, it might have been, you know, like Tony said, they, they might have had a certain view of it wasn't appropriate. You could be friends. You could talk with someone. You could do it, but you can't date them. You, you can't bring them home, you know. So we, we just never knew that uh, what the parents' influence on our friends was. I mean, that's... Um, that, that, that'd be tough for us to even now kind of, to, we might have a better idea now, but then we probably had mm. no idea what the influence of our friend's parents was and, and what was quote unquote permitted and, and what was not. So that, that's a good point. And not just parents, but neighbors. I mean, my parents were sort of, they were teachers in the public school, so they were sort of known entities. But I just think like if, if Tony would have come over to my house back in high school, I had a neighbor just to the north of me. She called the police on like black construction workers who were sitting on the curb waiting to get picked up, you know, Mm. and she was pushing 90, you know, I don't want to know if you can write that off because of her generation or where she was coming from. But that that would have been humiliating for me if Mm -hmm. if, I'm not going to name her by name, but if she would have called the cops on my friends. But that's what you're up against, right? When you're in a neighborhood that's not used to seeing black people and it's getting dark and they may have been working construction across the street. It's like, really, lady, are you going to? That's, that's going to yeah. be your, your pretext. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of variables. And that could have been why these pom-pom girls bailed. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think we're all a little bit more superficial and less thoughtful yeah. when, when we're kids. At least I feel yeah. like I was. I don't want to insult any teenagers who are listening. But I just felt like a lot of what I intellectualized about, like, the racial diversity of high school came years later. Yeah. Right. Um, and that at the time... It was, and this is a blessing, it was just normal, you know, going to school, seeing you guys as individuals, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you get into diversity within diversity, too. I mean, you guys are both African-American. You grew up in different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You um, are Hispanic. You didn't speak Spanish. There were some kids at North who probably did. Yeah, and it's like a completely different group for Spanish speakers and a completely different experience because even Mexican-Americans would sometimes clash with the Spanish-speaking students you know there's they're they're different cultures and they again it's like well i don't know anyone from there it's like well your your grandparents you know we're in that group you know it's just a completely different thing and and on on social media you know i have friends that are my age we hung out with completely on a different political spectrum as me and i tell them i'm like our grandparents are the ones that you're talking about in that way now. You know, our grand, you you forget where our grandparents came from, and uh, that 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 baffles me as to how people can think like that, knowing what our family's experiences were. It, you know, fifty years ago, sixty years ago, seventy years ago, in the same situation that families today are experiencing. So, and a lot of times, I think that 
people fight not to be on the bottom. You know, whether, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when, when the Vietnamese came over, you know, I remember Paul, uh, which is Vu and Un and C and Ronald Reagan, you know, and I was like, Ronald Reagan, why would yeah. you name yourself that? But, you know, <laughs> I wanted to protect those guys. I mean, we, yeah. we were at Black Elementary, you know, and it was like, I, I told him, you have any kind of problems, man, you just, just tell me and yeah. I'll be there. You know, yeah. I was still one of the big kids and all that type of stuff. And, and, and it's, it's like, okay. We're going to pick on them because they're going to come take the jobs and all this type of stuff. And, you know, that, that, that's the, man, it's all kind of jobs. It's, it's all kind of opportunities for everybody, you know. Uh, do your best, you know, yeah. and see where that takes you. And so I, I don't have to try to hold, you know, Joe down, you know, to get mine. You know, I, I can be happy and try to help Joe and I can elevate myself at the same time. And we can have respect and we can have love, you know, and we can move forward. Or I can blame everything on him, yeah. <laughs> you know, and try to get with people that are like me, mm-hmm. you know, and just keep spinning the same nonsense all the time, right. you know. And, and, and it's not going to help anything. It's not going to bring us closer together, you know. And I, I try to stay as far away from uh, that kind of nonsense yeah. as possible. That's one thing about this. Um, sometimes there's some social media discourse that's well-meaning, but it's sort of essentialist about race, right. you know. Oh, and it's yeah. like if you can't identify individualism and, and you know, if we're going to be tribal about things, then that can't pretend very well either. Right. You know, it's there's things can, that can be accomplished by banding together as a group. But at the end of the day, we've, you know, tribal attitudes is not a, a good way to look at it. In part because of this diversity within diversity, I remember asking Yun Trin, I was talking about some guy I saw all the time, really tough Asian kid, and I'm describing him and describing him, and I'm like, yeah, this Vietnamese kid, except he's a little bit darker and he's really tough, and he's like, dude, that, that guy's Cambodian, I don't know him, <laughs> right? And so you had Vietnamese kids who were Viet Q who came over in 75 and were middle class in Vietnam. You had kids who were in refugee camps in Australia, like Nyan, and came over much later. You had kids um, who were Hmong or who were Cambodian. And when I was in high school, I had barely the sense. It wasn't until I'd been to Cambodia and realized I actually ran into Cambodians all the time at North. North had way more Cambodians than I realized. And so that's even more reason not to see things in tribal terms is that I, this guy that I assumed was was Vietnamese to right. Nyan, it was obvious that he right. was Cambodian, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and so, um, even I mean, even just the class differences mm-hmm. uh, among white students at North. I remember I was there was you, I don't know if you remember the Christian groups. There was Fellowship of Christian Athletes, mm-hmm. Young Life, and Bible Club. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, uh, Young Life and FCA were sort of fighting to be the cool people group. They were all racially diverse, but. The Bible club was the poorest kids. It was they tended to be a little bit more mm-hmm. fundamentalist, more poor white kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's interesting. Like I didn't know the Cambodian kids as well as the Vietnamese kids because they weren't in honors classes. You know, I knew um, them from those environments. I didn't know the Bible uh, club kids because I didn't go to Bible club, and they weren't in honors classes. You know, the, the poor kids are demographically less likely to be in honors classes. They have fewer resources. Um, I have a theory. I've talked with Kay about this a little bit. I asked a couple of our uh, Asian. Uh, cohorts. We had our class, Joe, you were a little bit older than us, but our class had uh, Vietnamese co-valedictorians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll beat these names out later, but I asked if she wanted to come and talk to this, and she just wasn't really that comfortable. I asked 
who I've known forever. Yeah. And of course, she lives in Australia now. But I asked her if she was interested in joining the conversation somehow. And, you know, she wasn't interested either. And Kay and I were talking about this. In a way, the Vietnamese kids were a little bit more global than we were. Yeah. And you guys can agree or disagree. But I remember there were in, I had a mullet in high school. The new wave kids were hard. Like, <laughs> hard mullet. Tony, Tony has my witness. Hard. Um, but a lot of the new wave kids were, um, were Vietnamese kids who'd been in refugee camps in Australia. They had studied Western culture. And the magazine said that if you want to be cool in America, you listen to Depeche Mode and you wear your hair hanging in your eyes. And they went to Wichita North where the white kids had mullets or jerry curls. Um, and so in a way, and I'm curious to know what you guys think, it felt like maybe without even realizing, even though they didn't have more money than us, they were a little bit more global than us. Because um, I know Nyun went to San Jose, which is sort of like the Manhattan, the Vietnamese Manhattan Island, uh, uh, just because there was he had family and friends there. So, what do you, what do you guys think? I I think there's something to that. Go back to Joe. You made the comment that when your family went to Kansas City, it was a big deal, right? Right. Yeah. So, and Rolf, you just referenced young people who come from Cambodia, lived in Australia, and now in Wichita, Kansas. Those people, those kids had been on three separate continents. Joe was doing well to go two and a half hours north, right? So just the the exposure, the opportunity, the the I won't say cosmopolitan piece of it, but just the awareness of the world, right? Knowing there's other places to live. And that it can be better or worse, no yeah. matter where it is that you are. We know what we know. Those students had been exposed to things in lots of different places, lots of different, um, from very different vantage points. They knew what it was like to be on top, many of them, and then what it was like to be at the bottom. And that you, you're at the bottom, not because of what you did, but because of whatever the turmoil was going on in your country. To Tony's point, in some cases, we were at the bottom economically because that's where we were, not because of anything that uh, the government takeover or, um, you know, crazy political strife war yeah so just just the notion of what it was students are exposed to as a result of the travel and the the, the multicultural experiences i think um is, is a differentiator and for me um uh, i have some insight uh insight because my wife is vietnamese and you know i just feel like the vietnamese community it's it's, it's really tight and it's hard to penetrate, you know. And so uh, when when they come, I mean, they are thinking bigger picture of, of, of how they can broaden and expand and enhance their lives. But they don't come here thinking, I'm just going to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. They know that they have support of their friends that they make, their families that they have. And so they're not afraid to take that chance. If, if I have a cousin or an aunt over in Australia or in California, I'll move there and we can live together and, and we can do things, you know, to help elevate, you know, they, they work together uh, to achieve things. Well, we're having this conversation in your house, Tony. We're in a part of Wichita that when we were teenagers, this was country. Uh, yeah. This was a cornfield <laughs> in the 1988. Booties. We still got one over there <laughs> across the street, yeah. Uh, and so um, 
we've, we've been we've been having this conversation with your wife in the room. Let's let's include her in the conversation. Can you introduce uh, your wife to our listeners? All right. This is my wife of uh, 25 years, going on 26 years. To it, Johnson. Hello. So, uh, are we born in Wichita? To you? No. Okay. I uh, we came over when I was about 10. Okay. We escaped from Vietnam and yeah. So, what has it been like listening to us talk about? I think racial it's very perspective. Interesting. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I've seen it all. I mean, I, you know, I attended North for a year, and we moved to the northwest side of town um, during my sophomore year. But of course, then there was no. I mean, I, we were one of the one of two families at Northwest High School. Huh. Vietnamese so, families. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And Tony, did you, did you know Tia when you were in high school, or was that later? No, I didn't know her until college. So none of us knew you. Yeah. Back in the you went to one up north, but not concurrently with us. Joy could have been a possibility. Our first okay. Man. Okay. But every everyone that you mentioned are my friends. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So everybody. Uh, so um, even though we moved west, northwest, um, I every weekend we would get together. You know, I, I still connect was uh, still connected with all of my north friends. It, it's hard because of our culture, uh, and um, we we just didn't branch out to become friends with the, you know if we were we were but uh, we stayed. We, Pretty much with our group of people. Why do you think my friends, my Vietnamese friends from high school, were hesitant to have this conversation? Is that another Asian thing, or was it? Did I just catch them on a bad day? Because I know that sometimes um, Asians are seen as a model minority, which is sort of a, maybe annoying an annoying thing to talk about. Um, so I, I didn't know. I, I I wanted to respect their desire to not have an interest in the conversation at all, but I didn't know if it was an Asia specific conversation or not. Uh, maybe because we don't feel that it's relevant uh, or that we're relevant in that area. Well, you said that, you know, Vietnamese tend to be a little bit insular, but you're married to Tony Johnson. Yes. <laughs> um, who's not Asian. And so how did that go over? And how? And, and you can weigh in as well, Tony, how did that courtship work and how does this partnership work? Well, when, when we got together, my, um, my parents kind of disowned me. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we went through a period of, uh, of not really having any communication with my side of the family uh, because that was something that we didn't do, you know, um, and especially married to a black uh, man. We, that was just, there's discrimination, you know, uh, against the, the, uh, the black race. And uh, that was just, uh, you, you, maybe you can marry a white person, but not a black person, you know, and... Um, but when after they got to know him, that was a different story. But I think it was just because of lack of exposure, lack of, of knowing people. Of, uh, but once Tony came into the picture, then my, my dad and everybody else started, oh, I have a friend at work that's black, you know, or I got to know this person because, um, but I, I think it just takes a, a, you know, to know somebody um, before you open up your heart to it. You know, when we got together, she said, like, the family disowned her for, for a while. And, you know, like, in their culture, it's, it's a big deal to get together, eat, drink, and, and, and you know, just enjoy people's company. And so, you know, she was the oldest child in the family. And, um, you know, there's leadership that she brings to the family but was missing <laughs> because we were together. And so, uh, you know, and the parents want their daughter and all this type of stuff and uh, to be around. And so they finally reached out and they invited us uh, 
to a dinner at, at, at her mom and dad's house. And, you know, and I had made friends with, with, um, her friends and, and, and things like that. And so they were telling me like, yeah, he might slap you and all this type of stuff and, you know, don't hit him back or <laughs> anything like that. And so I was down in the basement and then all of a sudden, you know, an hour, two hours later, he calls for me to come upstairs. You know, I hadn't seen him. And, uh, so just the father. Yes. Okay. And so I'm like, Oh Lord, here, <laughs> here we go. And so, um, I got up there and, and, and we were talking and, you know, it, it was hard because he doesn't speak English that well, but I mean, I think he understands a good amount. And so, um, I had just told him, I was like, you know, you don't have to worry about your daughter. You know, she's going to be taken care of. And I was like, you know, love has no color. And, you know, and I, I had expressed to him that, you know, I, I, I know he wanted her to be with someone that's Vietnamese. But if that was his main intent, then he probably should have kept her in Vietnam because love has no color. Once he got here, I mean, you, you open up to everyone. You know, everyone is a possibility. And, you know, I didn't say it disrespectful or, or anything like that. And he still remembers that conversation. I think he brought it up like within the past year when, when I went up there and talked to him and he said, you know, he understood. And after that, it was, you know, smooth selling from there. And I think I've become one of the favorites, you know, so. Um, I think Tony has changed a lot of, you know, even my people in my community who were not open to getting to know, you know, uh, black people um, are now, I mean, every time they see me, where's Tony at, you know, um, and, and, and I, I think it's been really good for our community. I mean, it was so serious. And my dad was pretty well known in the community because mm -hmm. he was an MC, you know, at weddings and, and um, pretty well known. In the, and he just said that that was you know, you brought so much shame to the family by marrying a black man. And, uh, but now, uh, yeah, it, mm -hmm. it has changed uh, completely. Do your kids speak Vietnamese? Uh, my oldest, she speaks, but she, she's afraid to because she, she feels like she might get the accents wrong, wrong. but she, she, she has a very good accent. Um, they understand at home. We do mm -hmm. speak, you know, I'll tell them little things. Uh, and Tony does too. <laughs> he speaks some. Um, but he, of course, he has the American accent when he's speaking it, but he understands the things that I tell him to do at home. Of course you understand the things she tells you to do at home. <laughs> <laughs> All men understand. Uh, that's, that's, that's a universal language. language. You don't even have to use yeah, words. Happy and I'm sure. wife, happy <laughs> We haven't oh, talked man. about the, uh, the cultural subtext of male versus female communication. That's yeah, another podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think that just shows again, just as I mentioned, um, you know, getting to know someone, you know, we're, we're, we're afraid sometimes yeah. to just get to know somebody different. And then once you do, you find out you have more in common than yes. you realize. Right. Yes. And, if, and that there's so many things that I see is just that is, that's hate filled, um, whether it's on TV or social media or just people talking. And it's usually just based on stereotypes that are that are not accurate and just the fact that we separate ourselves so much that we don't interact enough mm -hmm. with people who are different than us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I, my, my aunts married black men, mm -hmm. my cousins look African American mm -hmm. and, and Tony knows my cousins and, 
And so we would be, we we grew up together. We'd always hang out, and we would tell people we're cousins, and they'd look at us in like bewilderment. I'm like, yeah, we're cousins. Like, you Is know, Junior our, one of them? Uh, junior, junior Epps. Epps. Yeah, yeah, Junior Epps. Yeah, Junior, James Epps, Michael McCall. You know, we we all grew up together. All hung out, and we never, you know, we never had issues, and just and thus people were just surprised by that, and that always baffled me. Like, why are you surprised at that? But again, I think back. It's probably at a time where you know the that um, interracial marriages still were, 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 were an issue at that time for our aunts, um, you know, for my aunt growing up. And, um, but it just speaks to me that, you know, I, I experience uh, culture, people from different cultures, different backgrounds. It taught me a lot as a person and what I wanted to do as an individual and how to behave. And, it, it saddens me when, when you see so much hate go on from um, the actions of people today. Um, if, if it could be rooted in, and as Tony has mentioned, and, and Kay has mentioned, everyone's been just in love. And, and again, I'm not trying to preach this kumbaya, everything's perfect, but it's the lack of understanding and getting to know people who are different than us. It's a fear in some ways. Um, if it's taught from high school on, um, that's what we know is, and when we grow up and um, those lessons get handed down to children and those children have the same type of uh, feelings about different groups of people. They just, they just don't experience it enough from those who are different than them. I would even offer not just the love part, but the, the courage. Uh, you know, I've known Chouette since college. We worked together at, in the residence halls, uh, summer programming. And the courage that it would take for a young woman to even engage in the type of work that we were doing at that point. Um, while did, you, not, did you know her before she was with Tony? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say yeah. Uh -huh. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back up. Um, but so she's always had... But I knew you first. This is true. <laughs> Happy triad here. Um, the courage to, to be engaged, even though her cultural yeah. phenomena was to remain kind of together. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the work that you did very early on in your career, mm -hmm. I mean, even as a college student, was pouring into children who didn't look mm -hmm. like you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which gave you, I would imagine, an appreciation and a love for young people and all mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. um, and then bringing that back to your family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just think that that we can't ignore that that with the love comes a willingness to be courageous mm -hmm. uh, and to to do some things that folks haven't done before. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened at North High as well. Mm -hmm. um, I literally remember the first time Carrie Dial spent the night at my house. And I was like, my dad was like, you're going to have a white girl spend the night? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do this. Let's see how that goes, right? Social like, experiment. <laughs> it's a social experiment. Yeah. Um, those types of things that I don't, I don't think came easy. Um, for us or for, or it can't, it was easier for us, but not without having to ask a question or ask for permission to do something that hadn't been done before. You have sons. I um, do. And, uh, has it been different for them? How do you think, uh, oh. the, the, the social one, one aside that I'll point out is that I expected, I, I think one scourge of our time is clickbait. And so sometimes when you hear a conversation about race, you, then you sort of get in a defensive crouch and you're ready for the conflict, right? And one fun part of this conversation is how much it comes back to shared experience and love and respect. And really, this is going to be an unclickbaity episode. I'm sorry to my listeners, but um, 
kumbaya, call it what you want. It's an honest conversation. So I'm curious, you know, your, your kids, all of, all of your kids are, are children of the clickbait era. But um, I, when I was at your place the other day, I ran into one of your sons. How is it different for them? I think very different. I think that they don't, I don't want to say they don't see color. They see color, um, but they run towards that, right? So my children are, are very engaged in, uh, with folks that are different than them in any type, any number of different ways. Um, we happen to live on a corner where across the street, um, the family there, we would say he has two moms and two dads because his parents are divorced. Um, then a kid, two houses over has two dads because his dad is gay. And then there's a biracial couple across the street. And so my children grew up in literally in a community where family looks like any number of different things. They don't have a preconceived uh, notion of what family looks like. We have uh, to Joe, to your point, we have white cousins and we have black cousins and we have uh, an aunt who's Asian. And so but that I think that's always been kind of a black people mm-hmm. thing. We just we just take whoever shows up. <laughs> we just take whoever shows up. Um, but my right, just grab a plate, sit down. Yeah. Um, Love it. So our I, I think our communities have always really been really open. But I do think my children are much more um, egalitarian in that. My my oldest son is dating now, and I have not yet met her. But I have done the, the requisite Facebook stalking. <laughs> Uh, and she's absolutely beautiful, biracial young woman who's Thai and African-American. And I can't wait to meet her. <laughs> S- such that I've said, Dad and I are taking you guys to dinner next week. And he's like, there you go. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is a, a hesitancy or a reticence of I've made a choice that's different. And to what degree you say you accept Right. Mm-hmm. But to what degree are you really right. going to be OK or mm-hmm. how comfortable will she be? Right. Uh, and so I'm excited about the opportunity to prove that I'm good. I'm down. Bring her. <laughs> Just bring her. Just bring her. Well, it's funny when you mention uh, Thai and African-Americans like, oh, Tiger Woods. Right. <laughs> so, so like the, the, the cultural conversation has changed as as more demonstrative diversity, including men married to men and women married to women are things that we see in popular culture or the sporting mm-hmm. world. It, it becomes less weird, I guess. Yes. And that's really sort of one of the core of our conversations is it was never that weird for us because yeah. we were blessed to, to grow up around each other and, and yeah. not really figure out the racial algebra of our youth until we were much older and we heard right. race abst- uh, dis- uh, discussed in abstract ways. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, were you going to come in with something? Um, well, with, with, with my kids, you know. Um, Who are biracial. Yes, they're black and Vietnamese. And um, they grew up, I, I just told them, you know, our society will see you as black, you know. I was like, but you know that you're Vietnamese mm-hmm. and black. I said, you know, I want the Vietnamese side to love you. I want the black side to love you. And I want the rest of the world to love you, you know. And if they don't, don't worry about it because your mom and dad loves you. Mm-hmm. And so you can get through anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in your life experiences, though, you might experience something that's going to be different <laughs> than, than, than other people. You just got to find a way to work through it and keep you cool and keep your life. You know, we as me as a black man, I have to tell my sons, you know, I have to give them that talk. You know, you get pulled over by a police officer to do what you're supposed to do. Keep your hands on there and all that type of stuff so you don't get killed. I mean, it can happen, you know, and. and, and for someone, you know, 
my kids there, they're academically blessed. Um, you know, one graduated from Grinnell. Um, my daughter graduated um, biomedical engineering from Wichita State. Go shots. <laughs> <laughs> I have a daughter that's down in Nichols. She's going to be a physical therapist and all that type of stuff. That stuff just doesn't change you, you know, can doesn't save you from mm. what the complexion of mm-hmm. your skin is in this day and time, yeah. you know. Uh, so before they see an engineer, they see your black daughter. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and, and the approach that people have is about, it, it, it's going to change with what you put out. You know, once you sit down and you talk to them, mm. you're going to be like, wow, okay, <laughs> you know. She's they're on a different level. Yeah, they're on a different level. But, you know, if no one ever gives you that opportunity and they write you off just because you come in there <laughs> a different shade, you know, or, you know, what, what whatever it is, you know, that's that's a that, to me that's crazy. Um what did I miss? You know, if there's one thing that defines the white experience in America, it's that we miss everything, right? That um by assuming that our experience is normal, then sometimes there's things that we don't even think of. So what have I not thought to ask? Growing up, I really didn't realize a lot of things about myself. And then later on, I came to realize, oh, that was the experiences I had in high school because I interacted so much with people of different groups, you know, and uh, cross country, whether it was sports, basketball, cross country or newspaper or, or you know, whatever the, the group was, I, I interacted with a lot of different groups I learned a lot about different types of personalities, and that kind of served me well, you know, as I continued on um, into college. And then as a reporter, I think it really prepared me because I've talked with so many different people over 20 years' time when I was there. Um, those, those experiences all come, can't do anything but just help you prepare for, uh, for life in a lot of ways and, and, and Again, taught me to be more aware of myself too, and um, for for Mexican Americans, what people thought about my group and and how people perceived me, just based on the color of my skin and my last name, what they expect from you and what they don't expect from you, it really taught me a lot. I think one of the things that we haven't covered, but I I think is a good place launching off of what Joe has shared is not only did it it prepare us. Um, for real-world experiences, per se. Um, But it did so in a way that we have a network um, that most people don't have access to. Um, And I don't know that we we really leverage that to the degree. I I know my own children now, we teach kids how to network and how to build relationships so that you can leverage whatever social capital you have to advance not only yourself or whatever it is, your mission or... The, your 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 cause, but I can pick up the phone and call Joe Rodriguez, who is connected to the Mexican American community in Wichita in a way that I'm not. I can call a Ralph Potts in Salina, who's connected to a community that I can't reach. I can call a Tony. Or I can I can call a Tuet and have uh, multiple times to be able to connect into communities and spaces and with people that if I was in a more homogeneous community or had gone to a more homogeneous high school, those resources wouldn't be available to me. Um, so it not just it, it didn't just prepare us in the sense that now we know how to interact. 
it gave us legs into lots of different places with different people where I think we could, I've been able to do better work as a result of it. I just think that uh, North High provided us a, a great bond. And, you know, for the people that I keep in contact with, you know, social media and, and all that type of stuff, I honestly believe that I could reach out to them uh, and they would come through for me. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was just a good experience. Um, taught me a lot. Um, exposed me to a lot. Um, and, you know, I'm just very comfortable with, with, with my North High people, you know, whether they're younger, older, you know, it's, it's, it's just a good school to, to have went to and um, experience what I experienced in life. Social capital, man. Yes. Yeah, who, who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> Once a redskin, always. always. That's right. <laughs> and that's, I was just going to touch on that. The one yeah. thing we didn't mention was the mascot name of yeah. North. And it always got to me that the most racially diverse high school in the city at the time had this nickname that has now become a, a kind of a lightning rod yeah. of, uh, you know, national debate over whether it's uh, politically correct or not to use. But, you know, we, again, we didn't think about it back then in that way. We just didn't talk about things like that. But. Well, that's it. Gosh, yeah. Thank that's you. another topic for you. <laughs> you can and, do and that. Kay and I have talked about this yeah. before that, yeah. and you know, you're an administrator at a university. You have to be pretty careful about how you speak about a, a minority group that existed at North, but was even smaller numerically than yeah. all the other groups oh, yeah. that we've alluded to. Yeah. Um, and then that was one thing we were completely, it never occurred to me in high school yeah, that that was a, about an it. epithet, you know, yeah. but now that's part of the conversation. So that, that's a good point that, yeah. That for maybe a hundred years, fifty to seventy years, North has always been one of the poorer but more racially diverse and proudest schools proud, in yeah, Wichita, pride Kansas. Of that is unmatched, right? <laughs> yeah. As a mascot, that is probably a yeah. racial slur. You know, and and uh, there was a teacher. She was my journalism teacher, and she just retired last year. And I connect with her on social media. So she had taught at North for thirty plus years. Is she Native American? She's not. She's okay. white, but she, because she's taught at North High, North High Redskins, she's taught at the school. She's the advisor for the school newspaper in the yearbook, but she personally won't use the word Redskins. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just amazing that, it, you know, just in her personal life, she won't use the term. Yeah. And she's been at the school that has the nickname and I'm sure it's in the newspaper heart. and yearbook that, you know, it's been in, in there. And again, they... I buy T-shirts, you know. You go to buy a T-shirt at North now, and it has, you know, North High Redskins on there. And so you wear it in the wire wherever you think. God, I hope nobody comes up to me and says something about it. So. Well, that, that phrase, once Redskin, always Redskin, for North High graduates, that's such an affectionate thing to yeah, say. That's, yeah, that's yeah. like saying, these are my people. No matter what color they are, we shared this yeah, experience. Right, yeah. And now it is not mm. a very kosher thing to say. Yeah, they've negotiated from the school administrative standpoint to, to the degree that, I mean, we used to literally wear dresses with mm. moccasins. Yeah. Talk yeah. about cultural appropriation. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. There's I'm, probably pictures of you in the yes, yearbook. There are like pictures. That. There are pictures, which is horrible. Um, and until I met and became, had a, a, a relationship with a young man who is native American, I didn't know my sin in that regard. And right. so even though I am a proud North High, 
alumnus, it is really hard. And I, I will type it, but I will never, I won't put it on social media. Interesting. Yeah. I can't in yeah. in the, in the North High group. Yeah, I'm a, once a redskin, always a redskin. <laughs> yeah. uh, in a in in someone's basement. You got to be careful. <laughs> yes, it's. I think that's another thing that we weren't fully cognizant of. Like Tony, your basketball coach was in junior high was John Levi, right. a proud Arapaho. Yes, sir. Who was not only Native American but a war hero, basically right. served in in some of the scariest places in the Korean War. Never talked about that. And we, we sort of quaked in our boots when, when Coach Levi talked, not because he was Native American, because he was Coach Levi, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, so that's, that's weird. I wonder, of course, Coach is in his 90s now. I should ask him what, yeah, what he makes him. of that. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's not like we were completely um, Native American free. You're part Native American, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Didn't, didn't fully know that. But who's telling that story, you know? Yeah. And, and, and at what point is that a metaphor by which you find community? And at what point is it something that's exclusive or derogatory? Yeah. And I think too, it just goes to show about, again, for those who listening who may not fully understand all about North High School, but just the history of North. I mean, the school was built and opened in 1929. So I mean, it's almost a hundred years old. North High Redskins, the na- nickname has survived in the 1960s, South High School changed their nickname, which was the Colonels, and went to the Titans, you know, based on what was happening at the time. Yet North High Redskins has continued to survive after all these years. So it kind of shows to you just the history of the school and what a lot of alums think about, you know, their passion for the, and love for that, that nickname and what it means to them. Well, I mean, architecturally, it's yeah. an extraordinarily unique Art Deco building yeah, that incorporates yeah, Native yeah. American themes. One thing, I was looking at the detailing when I was a senior, I was blown away. There was a swastika there. Yes. I wrote an article about this for the North Star when I was a senior, that basically North High was built before the Nazi party adopted the swastika as right. their symbol. Like it was a, a Native American symbol. Yeah, like, that means, you know, the continuity of the seasons. Yeah. And so um, there's even an architectural component yeah. like part of the pride of north high is the fact that there's no school like that in america correct right yeah um like what other school can you have a bible verse on the side of the building <laughs> not many these days yeah. have that. a bible verse the redskins what's and what a swastika, are, and a swastika. <laughs> oh this feels like a whole new episode you got a whole other topic there <laughs> right. well thanks for chatting guys we will thank you ross continue to, to chat with the microphone off and we appreciate it yeah. It's been great just to, to be together. Yeah. It has been. Yeah. 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 This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.